This morning in chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 17, we're going to be looking at the letter from our Lord Jesus to the church at Pergamum. Uh, let's begin by reading the letter, that we, uh, and then we'll go back in more depth as we go. Uh, starting in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it uh, that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Lord, we come to you and we ask that uh, we indeed would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Lord, we're so far removed from the church at Pergamum, and yet there's nothing new under the sun. And so, Lord, will you give us the implications of what you want to say to us here in 2021 in Walla Walla, Lord? May we be that church that hears the voice of our Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, as we already looked at the first two letters in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, uh, we know that John is 90 years old. He's 90-something years old. He's a prisoner on the island of Patmos, which is like 60 miles off the coast of Ephesus from modern-day Turkey. And and, uh, he was there for the gospel. And it's on Patmos that John receives the vision of Revelation. Uh, where he is told in chapter 1, verse 19, and that's a key verse. He's told, uh, write, therefore, these things. Uh, He says that you've seen uh, those that are are and those that are about to take place. Sorry, making a little more. So I can stare you down, Skip. (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, you get called out, yeah. No, just kidding. Where... (laughs) Where he, he's basically told three things in, in, in Revelation chapter 119. It, and and this, that's the key verse to Revelation. It, the Revelation is divided into three different sections. And we're only going over the second section. But the book of Revelation is divided into those three parts. Chapter 1 verse 19 is key. And so chapter 1 is, is writing down what he saw, which is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see Jesus in all his splendor and it describes all these things regarding the Lord. And then, uh, and then chapters 2 and 3 is what is going on at that time. And these are the letters to the churches. That's what we're focused on. And, but then you get into chapter 4 all the way to the end and that's what's going to come after this. And that's uh, basically the apocalyptic future events. And so after being introduced to the glorified Jesus in chapter 1, the Lord tells John, I want you to write these seven letters to these seven churches. And so that's where we are. And these were real churches at that time. People try to do a lot with that. They're real churches, real people, real places, uh, real situations going on. 
and the Lord was writing to them. Uh, they're all located in modern Turkey, what would be modern Turkey, and they're kind of spread out along the coast, and they kind of go inland, and there's actually a kind of a postal route that these would have been delivered, meaning uh, the messengers who received the letters from John would have gone up the coast, delivered it to Ephesus, and then the, and then the next Smyrna, then Pergamum, they would have gone inland and come down. Sorry, gone inland and come down. Um, but these were real churches, again, uh, much like you would see in our city and other places around here. And the Lord writes to each of these churches, and in doing so, He does two major things. He encourages them and He exhorts them. Or He, uh, you know, He commends them and He corrects them. Whatever kind of words you want to use there. But most received both in encouragement and correction. Both had, most had things that were going well and things that need to be fixed. Uh, some received just encouragement, and one, I think, or two of them just received uh, just correction. And so the Lord gave, while the Lord gives these things, these commendations and corrections for these specific churches, these letters were read by the other churches. They were reading each other's mail, and so they were mutually edified as they read each other's letters. And so uh, although they were sp specifically for those churches, um, they are also profitable for us today and all churches throughout all time, both then and now. As we read, uh, it said, uh, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, like, this is what He's saying to all the churches in some way. And so there are aspects of these things that are really, you know, we're going to read and we're going to go, hey, this is going to be great. This is something, this is hitting home. There's things that will go, well, that's not for me. But we want to let the Lord speak to us as we go through there. And so, we're, as we're making our way through these seven letters in chapter 2, 3 of Revelation, it's really my prayer and my hope as we started out this, that our little fellowship in Walla Walla, our little church, so to speak, um, in 2021, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. And the church is not the building, it is the people of God. And so, may the Lord speak to us this morning. So, this morning in verses 12 through 17, we're reading the third letter written to Pergamum. Um, and so, in verse 12, we see the, an introduction. And this is how it is in all three of the letters. There's an introduction. Normally, uh, you know, you'd say who you are at the end of our letters. Well, it's going to be at the beginning of this one. And so, you have three different parts of, a, of an introduction here. Uh, who, who the messenger is, uh, who's, be, who's being written to, and who is writing the letter. And verse 12 says there, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, we know from past studies that John the Apostle is writing all this. We already mentioned that. But he's writing to seven different angels. And the word angel simply means messenger. We've already gone through this. And so this is most likely writing to an elder or a pastor of a particular church who would then bring that home and, and pass it to that church. Um, this letter was written to the church here in Pergamum or Pergamus. How many of you have Pergamus? Some of you have Pergamum? Right. Same thing. Just a little translation thing one way or the other. It means it's the same thing. I, have, uh, I grew up with New King James Version and so Pergamus. If you hear me say Pergamus, I mean Pergamum. Okay. It's the same thing. It's just ingrained in my mind. Real quickly, there's an image up there. It should be maybe an image. Did I, did I get you the images there? Uh, but you can see from the map, Pergamum is about 100 miles. It's the top star on the top left there. It's 100 miles north of Ephesus. You got, an, you got the, the previous church we talked about was, is, is halfway between it and, and, and Ephesus. 
about 50 miles there. Pergamum is about 20 miles inland from this Aegean Sea there. The name Pergamum means height or elevation or citadel. And it's, and, and actually that is words sometimes mean, uh, ancient words kind of do. Sometimes it, it means something, but later on means something else. For example, the word martyr simply means witness. That's what the literal word means, means a witness. But because we know that witnesses died for Christ, martyr took on a whole new meaning. And so that wasn't just a witness, it was a witness who died for Christ. And so uh, like Pergamum, it's, that's where you get the word from, for parchment. I know it's weird, it's like, what's the connection there? I don't know. But uh, this, is, this is extra credit, this is for your edification apparently. But it's basically where they first invented like writing materials that were on animal skin. So that's kind of, it's, it's tied in there. Um, Pergamum is built on a thousand foot hill um, in a broad fertile plain. And so it rose to a great height there. You can see a little bit of its beauty. It was the capital city of a, of a Roman province in Asia for about 250 years. So where Turkey was, that was a Roman province. And it was the capital of all that region for around 250 years. Uh, like Smyrna, which we went over last week, it was enthralled with Caesar worship. And so this was actually the center of Caesar worship. They were the first to build a temple to Caesar in 29 A.D., there in Asia Minor. And in addition to this, Pergamum was the center of worship of Athena and Asclepios, Dionysius, which is Bacchus, and Zeus. And so the worship of each of these false gods was very prevalent in these, in these cities as they are in most pagan cities. And associated with the worship of all these gods would be uh, food sacrifice to idols and this various sexual moralities that would be tied to all their rituals and all those things. And so like most of the cities of the day, uh, sexual morality, food sacrifice to idols, that would just be permeated throughout the entire culture. Everything that was done would have some kind of tie-in to all of that. Uh, Pergamum was also the center of medicine and healing, if you want to call it that. Maybe we probably would today in some weird ways. But uh, Pergamum was the uh, was really out of all the various gods, basically there, one that was really uh, really worshipped in that place was the god of uh, well, god called Asclepios. He was prominent. Asclepios was the god of healing and the god of knowledge, and was represented by a serpent. And so we've seen in modern medicine the serpent on a pole. And uh, basically some, uh, it goes back to Asclepios. Well, some believe it even goes further back from Asclepios to Numbers, to the Bible. And so there's kind of perversions of things. But basically the sick and the diseased for all Rome would come there to get relief. Uh, William Barclay describes the following situation. And so you might want to not complain about your health care. It says, sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were tame snakes, non-venomous, that is. And in the night, the sufferers might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground of which they lay. Uh, the touch of the snake was, uh, was held to be the touch of, of the God himself, and the touch was held to be uh, to bring health and healing. And so... Um, if you were in that city and you had something going on with you, this, is, this was your medical situation. Um, no, thank you. Like, I'm, t- <laughs> I'm totally fine. Uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> the next time you see a medical symbol with a serpent, remember that's, that's its origin uh, if it doesn't go back to the Bible before that. 
Um, so, and by the way, you can find the description of the biblical part in Numbers 21 and 2 Kings 18, and Jesus references it in John 3.16, where he says, so the, son of, so the serpent on the pole is lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's what he's referring to. But in addition, Pergamum had a library of 200,000 books. Remember, they didn't have the printing press, right, for another 1,500 years or so. Like, it, they were all handwritten, 200,000 books. Can you imagine that? So it was a kind of a university of sorts. But <laughs> a little historical note, and this is kind of fun to, fun to know. Um, Mark Antony uh, was in love with Cleopatra, and so he boxed them all up and sent them to her. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's what happened. See, you guys are learning a lot of things this morning and very edifying. But this is a snapshot of the city, right? This is a, I'm just giving you an idea of the kind of city that they were living in. What would it be like to be a believer to have been raised in that background, to have that as your background, you're totally pagan, you're lost, or whatever it might be, and you, you know, you went and if you were sick, you went and hung out with snakes, and you were used to all the sexual practices that went on with, associated with this, and you were always accustomed to eating all the food sacrificed to idols. I mean, that was your life. And then the Lord Jesus somehow, probably through the preaching of Paul, it said it went through all the region, all of a sudden the light of God just shines in your heart and you're convicted of your sin and the Lord comes in and changes you and you're born again and here you are, this glorious new radiating being uh, created in the image of Christ Jesus in the midst of this darkness. I mean, what would it have been like to then now stand for Christ in the midst of such darkness? This is what it was like. And so... Pergamum is, is being written to by the Lord in that ver- first verse there. And, and Jesus identifies himself to the church there. And he says there, he says, he, he says who's writing. He says, he wants to know who, whose words they're reading. He says, the word, it's the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get a letter saying, this is from the guy with a sharp two-edged sword, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's probably not too comforting at the moment, and that's the idea. It's not going to be comforting. Uh, you can already tell this is going to be a corrective letter. Uh, Jesus doesn't address himself as he did to the Ephesians, as the one who, uh, or who held the stars in his hand. He didn't address himself as he did to Smyrna, as the one who was dead and is alive. He addresses himself as the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. If you remember back in Revelation 1, Verses 12 through 16, Jesus describes himself in that first chapter, that big picture of of him and all his glory, the picture of the two-edged sword there in verse 16 of Jesus. It says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So the picture of the Lord in all his glory, and he's glowing in his brilliance, but out of his mouth is coming a sharp two-edged sword. And we know that this this, sharp two-edged sword is a picture of the Word of God, right? The Word of God. And Hebrews 4, uh, 4 12 through 13 kind of gives us an idea of what the, God, the nature of the Word of God. It says the Word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than. He says it doesn't say it is. He says it's sharper than. And the idea is it's pictured as a two-edged sword because that's what people would go, wow, that's sharp. But it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Well, we don't even know what in the world's going on in our own minds. But the Word of God is able to penetrate through all of that nonsense and to get to the heart of the matter and expose things 
as they truly are. And he goes on to say, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. So this is Jesus. The two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. and He's saying, this is who's talking to you. Nothing is hidden. I know what's going on. And my word is going to expose you. And so the picture of the word of God there in Hebrews is one that cuts to the heart of the matter, that exposes and lays bare. And Lord Jesus, as he's writing to this church, he says, this is me. This is who's writing to you. And that word for sword, by the way, is not your short dagger that we use to, uh, uh, to do certain things. It, it, is, it, is, it is the broadsword, the Roman broadsword, the long one, the one that, was meant, that kind of identifies with judgment. That's the idea of this sword. It's a, it's a picture here of cutting judgment. And the idea is that the Lord has his sword at the ready towards this church. Now, we don't often think of that. The Lord, hey, we're saved, everything's good, but the Lord has, is allowed to judge his own church. Isn't that wild? That's scary. You know, we, and, and this is going to speak to a lot what we're talking about today, the idea of cheap grace. But the idea is that the Lord has his sword at the ready towards this church, and we're going to see why in just a second. But after the introduction, after he introduces himself to the church, he tells the church what he knows, what he knows. And this isn't a cursory knowledge, like I I know, you know, about X, Y, Z. No, it's an intimate knowledge. This is a gnosko knowledge. This is an intimate knowledge. He intimately knows what is going on with that church, with those people. In verse 13, he starts out and says, I know where you dwell, where you live, where Satan's throne is. The Lord was not oblivious to the challenges that faced that church. The Lord knew exactly and even more fully than they did what they faced as believers. And the Lord lets them know, he says, listen, I know you live where Satan's throne is. And they might, there might be some kind of cultural connection where they might have understood that. But the idea is that the Lord had a full understanding of where they lived and what they faced in all these circumstances. And in the case of the church of Pergamum, they lived where Satan's throne was. That's weird, isn't it? Now, even if we don't know what that means, and, and we're going to kind of take a guess at it, we know that as a believer, that's not a good thing, right? Whatever that is, it's not good. You're hanging out where Satan's throne is. Now, we don't know exactly what that means there. I like what Pastor David Guzik wrote about this. He said, there are many different opinions as to why Pergamos was such a stronghold of satanic power. He said, some believe it was because Pergamos, again, he's Calvary guy in New King James Version, Pergamum, Pergamos, right? Pergamos was a center of pagan religion, especially of Asclepios, Soter, Asclepios, Savior. Um, some believe it was because Pergamos had a huge throne-like altar dedicated to the Roman god of Zeus. Some believe it was because Pergamos was the center of the ancient Babylonian priesthood. But this, uh, this is tough to prove con- uh, con- conclusively. Others believe it was because Pergamos was the uh, political center of the worship uh, demanding Roman Uh, demanding worship of the Roman government. So basically, there's all these ideas. We don't know why it's the throne of Satan there. All these things would be indicators of why Jesus says, hey, I know where you live. It's such a bad place. There's a lot of demonic activity. 
Regardless of the reason, it's clear that the city is a place where Satan just had a stronghold. He was powerful. He operated there with just impunity. The manifestation of satanic power was evident in the culture. And boy, do you not see that more and more as we look at our culture, just the manifestation of satanic power just being more and more prevalent in our, in our culture, not so subtle anymore. But remember that Satan is not, he's not in hell. This is important for us to remember. Satan is not God's opposite. He's not ruling hell. Hell is created for Satan and the fallen angels. They're going to go there. That's what's going on. Remember, Satan's not in hell. That's his final destination. He's on earth. What is he doing on earth? Roaming to and fro. And he's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. We saw in Daniel that there are ranks of demons influencing kings and nations and all these types of things. We saw that out of the book of Daniel. We saw that in the temptation of Jesus where Satan took Jesus on a mountain, and what did, he, what did he say? On a very high place, on a hill, way up. And he said, he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, I will give these to you if you bow down and worship me. What is, what is the implication of that? That Satan, Jesus didn't like sit there and go, no, you don't have power over these. He said, yeah, you do. But I'm not getting them the way you want. I'm going to go through the cross. I'm not taking a shortcut. See, the Lord was buying back. So, but the, the point is, is that Satan has dominion and power and influence over the nations. And so I, I just kind of tend to think it, it means exactly what it says. This is where Satan's throne was. This is where he was operating, where he was working out of. This is kind of where he was in that region. And it kind of makes sense to me because this, this is where Jesus is writing all the letters to, to the churches in this area. But neither here nor there. You can take it one way or the other. There's massive satanic opposition. And the point being, how difficult it must have been to be a believer in the center of all of that. And the Lord knew it. The Lord knows. It isn't like, oh my gosh, what is happening to the church in Walla Walla or, or to you and your work or whatever it might be. I didn't know that was happening. No, He knows. He wasn't, it wasn't hidden from him. He knew where the satanic activity was and, and what they faced. The same goes for us. The Lord also knew, knows something else. Verse 13, and yet you hold fast to what? Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And this is the encouragement for the church from the Lord, a commendation from the king. So the Lord knows how to encourage his church. He knows what we're doing well. How many of you need to be encouraged in, in what you're doing well? Yes, absolutely. And, and even though you live where Satan's throne is, Jesus is saying, even though you live where Satan's, Satan's power is evident, where all this demonic activity is going on, when, when you're in the midst of the sea of darkness, you held fast to my name. Stand for you, Lord. You didn't deny my faith or, or faith in him. I'm yours, Lord, in the midst of all this. I'm yours. You held fast. How many of you are going, man, it is hard living for the Lord in this age, and you feel the pull and the temptations and all that stuff, but yet you stand fast for the Lord. Amen. Be encouraged. Amen. Amen.
Again. I'm sorry. I'm standing. Woo. I'm crawling for Jesus. Again, the city of Smyrna, which we saw last week, is where the radical false worship was, right, for Caesar. Remember that? And they were under threat of death once a year. Well, that was a radical city, but this was even more so for the, for the worship of, of Caesar, even though Smyrna kind of won an award and all this type of stuff for the Caesar worship. This was under constant threat of death and Caesar worship. And many think that, that this Antipas character that he's talking about was one who actually died because he would not offer the incense to Caesar as they were required to one, once a year. He says, listen, you guys stood fast in the midst of that persecution. When Antipas died, remember, the government came in, they said, hey, you've got to go ahead and give your pinch of thing to Caesar. And the church said, no way, no way. And they took Antipas and they killed him or whatever the situation was. They stood firm for the Lord. They said, we're willing to die. We love you. The Lord encourages them. He commends them for holding fast in His name, for keeping faith in such satanic opposition. Amen? But then also the Lord, you know, it's like there's, there's issues in this church. They're major issues, and he, he can't just pretend like those don't exist. And so he goes on to verse 14 and 15. The Lord not only knows how to encourage us, but He also knows how to exhort us. Amen? And He exhorts this church. He knows how to exhort and correct His church. And in Pergamum, He begins to exhort them over two things, verse 14 and 15. But 14 says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So the first correction the Lord has for the church, he says, you held fast to my name. You guys, you know, you didn't give up the faith, but here's the problem. You got some among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And, and, and they would have known back from, to the scriptures what he was talking about. Balaam was a prophet of sorts in the Old Testament. You can find his stuff in Numbers 22 through 25. But he was a, you remember he had the donkey that talked to him, that whole deal. But basically the king of, of Moab was a pagan king, and the Israelites had come into the land, and they had basically destroyed everybody they came against. God's favor was with them. And they were really freaking out. They were wondering, like, are we next? And so they go to this prophet for hire named Balaam, and they say, hey, we want to hire you to go curse them. Obviously, this is Old Testament stuff, right? And so the Balaam's like, okay, cool. Give me the cash, and let's go do this goes up on the hill three times and tries to curse them, and he ends up blessing them instead. He couldn't curse them. And he comes back to this king and says, listen, I can't do it. I can only bless them. But here's a workaround. There's a workaround. And this is, this is the point that is, 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 is kind of at the heart of it. He says, basically, the Achilles heel of Israel is their holiness and devotion to the Lord. That's where their strength and their power is. They're separate from the world. They're devoted to the Lord. That's where their strength, that's where their power, that's where their favor comes from. It's from being close to the Lord. And if the king, he says to this king, if, if you can get them to compromise, if you can get them to 
become ingrained in the culture around them, if you can get them to be compromised in their holiness and devotion to the Lord, then the Israelites, they're going to lose favor with God, and therefore they're going to lose their strength and their power, and you'll have them. So here's what you need to do. And Balaam told Balak, he says, the way to do that is you have your pagan wives intermarry with their men. These pagan wives who have pagan gods and foreign all stuff. And when they intermarry, what will happen is the, is the men's hearts will follow their wives' hearts. And they're going to fall into idolatry. They're going to join themselves, not only with their wives, but the God of their wives. This is why I don't marry Christians with non-Christians. This is why I want to, you know, if you ever you know, do premarital counseling from me, I grill you. I'm finding out who's, what's going on, because you got to be both for the Lord. But that's exactly what happened. Israel intermarried with the Moabites, and soon enough, their hearts started to worship these foreign gods. And they lost their favor, they lost their power, they lost their strength, they lost their witness. And God had to step in. He had to step in in judgment. He brought the sword. He killed 24,000 of them. And it stopped it for a bit. But idolatry was constantly in Israel's situation and constantly in their foreground. And the Lord Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum, He's saying, hey, the same thing is going on right now. So the same thing is going on right now. You have some who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Not like they're reading the Old Testament going, I hold to that teaching. It's the idea, meaning that there are some who believe that it was okay to have this integration of foreign gods in the worship of the one true God, that it was okay to integrate all of this stuff, to have the world be a part of the church, so to speak. And like the Israelites of old, they're getting involved with these pagan practices Someone was teaching them that it's all right, it's okay, God's grace is good, and all this type of stuff, and, you know, continue on to be married to the world and to engage in all the worldly things that are associated with it. And that day would have been sexual morality and food sacrifice idols. Those are the things. Today, it's mixed up a little differently, but it has the same flavors. But... They were getting involved in these pagan practices at the same time they were participating in the life of the church. And so while most of Pergamum were devoted to the Lord, most of them were devoted to the Lord. They wouldn't touch that stuff with the 10-foot pole. What was going on is they were tolerating those who did in the church. They were complicit in the sin. This is what the world hates about the church. You guys are so, you know, legalistic and you don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, we've been saved out of that trash. So I'm not going to sit here and celebrate what Jesus Christ died to save us from. Amen? Amen. It's okay to suffer and to take a stand for those. And by the way, you know, there's, you know, the world will always mistake holiness for haughtiness. And we can give them a lot of excuses for doing that, but... There's nothing wrong with being a holy church. Actually, that is the aim of being a separate thing. We're not here to entertain the world. The world is to feel really uncomfortable when they, when they enter this place among holy people who are set apart. 
There's a philosophy in, in the, in, you know, as a pastor, let's just, I'll just pick on me for a minute, um, to where we want to have more people. And so, well, how do you get more people? Well, you make it comfortable for them in every way so they can come on in and feel like they're at right at home. No. And it's not being mean. It's just not about them. It's about Him. And what happens is the Word of God cuts the heart. God calls and people repent. And they're drawn out of the world to Him, not into a worldly church. Amen? And by the way, yeah, we're supposed to be kind and gentle and all those things, but the truth cuts. It does. It cuts me first, cuts you guys, cuts... And, and there's this, you know, the Lord Jesus is the Lord of His church, amen? It's like not Pastor Matt is Lord. No way, man. I touch this thing before I come to you and I get cut. You know what I mean? And so... While most of the church was devoted to the Lord, they were holy, they were standing fast and all those things, there were those in the church that were living worldly, compromised lives, and it's not as if we don't all jump into those things from time to time and, and we get, you know, sucked into whatever it might be, but there was just a, an acceptance of it in the church. There was a tolerance of it, not a, not a purification of it. Does that make sense? And so not only those who were in it were guilty, but those who were allowing it and were complicit in it, and the Lord just says, man, I'm going to come to you with a sword. This stuff cannot go on. Why? Because whose church is it? Whose church is it, church? It's His church. And so there were those that were getting involved in the pagan things, right? They're getting involved in all the practices, and they're just going out to the feasts and doing the things that the pagans do that typified someone who was not saved. And it's apparent from the Lord's rebuke that the church was doing nothing about it. They were letting the church become worldly step by step by step by step, and it just kind of infiltrated. In the, and when that happened, the church lost its power it lost its witness. And so although you had a church that would not crack under direct persecution, isn't this interesting? Although you wouldn't have a church that would, wouldn't crack under direct persecution, they held to His name, they kept the faith. Their sin was that they were tolerating those who were compromised, who had one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. It's interesting, you know, you, you read a lot about, like, Soviet-era tactics and all that stuff. They, they, they decided long ago that they would play the long game. And, and they knew that militarily, head-on, it was not going to be a good situation for anybody if you just started lobbing nukes at each other. And so what they decided is, we're going to come in through the back door. We're going to go through the institutions, and we'll, we'll actually make, make this country communist through learning and through... Marxism and all this type of stuff. So here we are years later, and what do you see percolating throughout all our society? 
these Marxist ideologies of division and, and the oppressed and the oppressor and all this type of stuff, and it's peddled all the way through. I'm not preaching in against that, but I'm saying the enemy has, like, he's not going to hit you dead on all the time. He's not going to nuke you. Some of you have been nuked. You get it. But that's not his, remember, he's a cat. He's a lion, so to speak. His nature is it's deceitful, it's prowling, it's, it's tactical. He's not going to hit you with the nuke always. He's going to come in through the side. He's going to subtly come and get you in a situation where you don't realize you're, you're, you're under duress. And so I think that as a church, I think this church if, in general, if, if, the, if the enemy were to do a full-on frontal assault, we would take the initial barrage and we would go, we stand for his name and we stand for who he is. Amen? I just don't think that that's the way we crack, but I think what, what I'm more concerned about is the other way in. You think maybe he's at work and been at work? So we can keep the faith, we can keep his name, but do we tolerate? And I don't, when you say tolerate, you go, well, I don't want to be intolerant, like unloving. No, that's not it. But who do we love first and foremost? Lord, right? And so we gently restore our brother in sin. That's the idea, the spirit of humility, be careful, all this stuff. So it's not a hostility toward it, but there's just, there's a, there's a, there's a, a culture of holiness that should be in our church. And not a superficial holiness, but a true love and genuineness, respect for our Lord. We love Him, you know? And when His name and His character is attacked, we take it personally. Because that's, that's who's the Lord of our church, and we love him. He's our Savior, right? And while he's the ultimate judge, we're called to follow him. And by the way, notice this is written to the messenger to give. So there's a pastoral account, but there's also a church account, right? I'm not sitting here supposed to be judging your lives. We're, we're to be a, a cleansing effect upon one another. You know, and we know where, where these things are going on, where the compromise is going on in our little circles. I have no clue. But you guys do. Lovingly getting each other's life and encourage one another in the Lord and pray for one another and lead one another in these things. Don't let it go on because the end result is judgment. I don't want to be judged. Do you? So, you see, Satan's ta- attacks are not often full-on frontal. They're subtle. Compromise that moves us away from holiness, back towards worldliness. That's what we need to be aware of. The church is not to be a people who are worldly, but we're to be set apart from the world, in it, not of it. Right? Our vis- uh, I, I wrote down this uh, just for my own sake. Our evangelism isn't through our hipness, but our holiness. But then people won't come. Well, then they won't. We're not supposed to by coming. We're supposed to go, right? What's to draw people to Christ is not our worldliness <laughs> and our ability to relate and connect. It's, it's Jesus who is going to be able to relate and connect through strange ways. Some words from Peter regarding this. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, I would write this down. 
He says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Are you listening, church? A people for his own possession. That's who you are. He made you a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession from every tongue, tribe, nation. Amen? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who what? Who called you out of darkness. See, our witness is our holiness. He, that we, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the church is a kingdom of light. We're a kingdom of believers. We're a race. We're a people. We're a group who have been called out of the world into the light. The world is dark. The kingdom is light. We're called out. That's our witness that we declare the marvelous praises of him who did that. Amen? Once you were a people, you were not a people. That's the world. But now you are God's people. That's the church. Once you had not received mercy, that's the world. But, but now you have received mercy. That's the church. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners. This is not your home. Just traveling through as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is not your home. The world is not your home, church. Don't act like it is. Abstain from all these things. Don't get connected to the world in this way, which war against your soul. You can talk through that in Revelation. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of visitation. There's a lot there. I'm not going to preach it, but you get the idea. A holy church, an uncompromising church in doctrine and in action, man, that's, that's a powerful church from God's perspective, and that's the only one that counts. Remember that we preach Christ first, then the cross. I mean, we preach Christ first, and that comes with the cross first, then the crown, right? The cross, then the crown. The cross, then the crown. We get the cross, then the crown. We lose our power and our witness when we subscribe to the teachings of Balaam where we think we can live worldly, compromised lives and still be fine with the Lord. Don't want to be like Samson. Just read that whole thing. I'm not going to talk about it. But the Lord said to Pergamum, I have this against you. You have some there to hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And he'd say the same to us. We're going to read through the rest of this quickly. And secondly, like the first, the second thing he had against him is you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We already went through this. Um, some think that, you know, at, at, in Acts chapter 5 and 6, basically there were seven guys who were set apart to wait tables, and one of them, they were appointed by the apostles. One of them was named Nicholas. Some of them think he went AWOL and, and just went crazy, and then he had a bunch of the followers. We can't confirm that, but the idea is there's this group of these uh, Nicolaitans, and what they held to is the teaching of cheap grace. And the way that that translated into the church was, it permeated the church, is that go ahead and go to these pagan things and get involved in the orgies and all the stuff they have on. God's grace will cover it. Just go ahead, get connected to the world, and it's okay. God's grace, God's grace. In other words, grace is a license for sin. Paul deals with that, I think, in Romans 5, but... So it really goes hand in hand with those two. And the Lord just says, to the, he says, you have these people among you. This is what's going on. Be aware of it and take care of it, right, is what he says. 
those who are compromising and who think it's okay and who teach it's okay, that God's grace is a license for licentiousness. So, verse 16, what do, you, what do we do about it? What does the church do about it? What were they to do about it? What does he say there, verse 16? Therefore, repent. Ah, oh, another word that we don't like to hear in church. So here is, <laughs> is Jesus' command of the church at Pergamum. One word, repent. The word repent is a change of mind that follows by a change of action. Change of mind, change of action. Listen, church, you need to know that what is going on is, is sin against me. Believe it, and now change what you're doing accordingly. Turn back to me. Come to the Lord. Turning away from sin, turning towards God, who's provided the means of forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. There's only one path that God gives to people who are in sin. You want to know what that is? Repent. <laughs> Turn and believe in the Lord. It's all one big giant action. And by the way, we always talk to the world, repent. What about the church? Repent. Jesus says repent over and over to the church. It's pretty interesting. Turn from sin, turn to God. So verse 16, so that's, that's his command. Now what happens? He says, if not, I'm going to come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. If the church didn't repent in their compromise, the Lord says, I'm going to judge you guys. The scripture says in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. God starts with his own. The heretics who's taught this is going to be, are going to be judged. The participants who are actually doing that are going to be judged. And those who condoned it and allowed it, who didn't do anything about it, were going to be judged. That's the church. Just as the Lord wouldn't tolerate a loveless church with Ephesus, He's not going to tolerate a, 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 a compromised worldly church in Pergamum. And the Lord says, I'm going to come deal with this quickly. And I have a feeling that this quickly is quicker than the Lord's return. <laughs> this is probably even more urgently. He says, behold, I come quickly. This is like, I'm coming quickly. I think it's even faster because... The Lord hasn't come back yet, and the church of Pergamum is gone. The Lord said he was come quickly. He's not going to let it linger. And when he came, he made war against them with the words of his mouth. I don't know how that happened, but he was, they were confronted with the truth, and they were exposed, and everything was laid bare. He took care of it. We must, got, we, church, we've got to remember that the Lord Jesus is Lord. He is head of his church. We exist for His glory. Amen? The Lord Jesus desired, we were bought and purchased to be a holy and pure bride presented to Him before the Father. Verse 17, quickly, He was an ear, let Him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Am I listening? What do you think the implication of this is as we're looking at that? Let that run in your heart before the Lord. Am I compromised? Am I around people who are compromised? What's going on? Start with you. Work your way out. <laughs> to the one who conquers, here's the promise. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. Encouragement again. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except he who receives it. So the one who conquers, that, who's the one who overcomes? Who, who's that? 
The one who overcomes what? The one who beats up bad guys? The one who what? Overcomes what? What he just talked to them about. The one who would repent. The one who would reject the false teaching and the compromise. The one who would walk holy. The one who would keep in step. The one who would hold to the name of the Lord Jesus. The one who, to, uh, who, would, uh, not, who would keep the faith. That all describes what? A believer. Believers believe, right? To the one who does that, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. Well, what in the world is the hidden manna? We'll just read it real quickly. John 8, 8, 48, 51 gives us the answer, basically. He says, Jesus says to the Jews there, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. So what is he not talking about? The manna that was in the wilderness. He's not talking about bread. He's not talking about that. Who is he talking about? I am the bread of life. Yes, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus Christ is that bread. He says, you know what? You persevere and you have me. I am eternal life. I am your reward. The word for conquering and overcoming is the Lord, eternal life. And the Lord would also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except for the person who receives it. That's kind of weird. (laughs) It's like, thank you. (laughs) What is this name? We don't know because we don't know. It says you don't know. Only the person who gets it. What's he talking about? Something he's talking about the ermine and the thummin that was on the the chiefs, uh, uh, the chiefs, the uh, the chief priests' uh, chest plate, and they would take them out and they would use some things to divine things. I don't want to explain the whole New Testament thing, but to determine the will of God. And some are saying that you'll be able to have the gift of being able to determine the will of God, or something like that. Uh, some think that the white stone represents a diamond, and they link that with eternal life, but. I, but most likely, it's referring to the Roman custom of winners of an athletic event were given white stones with their name written on it. And, they, and when they were given that stone, they, it was their ticket into an awards a, a banquet in their honor, so to speak, or that only a few people would be able to get into. And, and I think the Lord's connecting their, their background with that and saying, listen, I'm going to give you eternal life. You're going to be able to get in. You're going to it's like, a, it's like you're in an athletic event that is extremely vigorous, extremely difficult. And when you finally succeed, you'll have this entrance into my kingdom. You'll be in the kingdom. And we already know salvation is not just a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing that is spread out. Well, it has salvation is the picture of, of um, when you believe in the Lord, you, you are saved and you're promised heaven, but that's worked out through your life and then you're saved when he returns. So salvation is like a big, long thing that ends in seeing him face to face. That's how the, you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. That's how the scriptures put it. So salvation, that's why Jesus not only says that when you believe you're saved, he says you're being saved, and he says on that day you'll be saved. The idea is believers believe, and that's what I want to say is believers believe. We, we believe till the end. This seems to be the most fitting picture here because those who overcome are not going to face judgment. They're going, to re- they're going to get rewards. Amen? And that's you. That's the church. Amen? What's neat about the promise is that those who overcome will receive a new name that only they will know. I think that's awesome. 
You know, that only, you know, we talk about the body of Christ, but the Lord has something for you individually. And you're going to get a new name. And it'll be something that only you will know at that time. Maybe everybody else will know it then. And so really, that really speaks of the love the Lord has for each of us. Church, let's let the Lord search our hearts and, and, and lives to see where we have compromised or have tolerated worldliness in, in our own lives. Not to be sin sniffers, you know what I mean? We're not trying to overturn everybody's life and poke into it and all that stuff. But I mean, Lord, search me. Search my heart, see if there's any wicked way in me, clean it out. And as I see it, my brother, make sure I take the log out of my own eye first. Gently restore those who are in sin around me for their edification. And when, when we have a holy church, we have a witness. Amen? We have a powerful witness. Because what the church, what the world needs, God has. And they're going to experience the love of God, and they're going to experience the truth of God and the power of God in Jesus Christ through his church. So may we not only be a church who will persevere in persecution and a church who excels in love for the Lord and one another, but may we also be a church who is holy. Amen? That's a work of the Spirit. Lean into it. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that as you desire, we would be that uncompromised, unblemished church in whole devotion to you. Lord, this isn't a message. This is, this is reality. And, and you stand with a sword, Lord, and I. And while you're loving and forgiving and all those things, Lord, you are pure and holy and radiant and, and you desire that the work that you did on the cross and the blood that you shed for us would be manifested in our lives and through this church. Lord, we exist for your glory. And we know that we exist to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, search us, purify us, cleanse us, forgive us. Everything we, we need and desire is in you. Reveal those things that, that are unpleasing to you, Lord, that we could confess them, change our mind about them, and go the other way. And Lord, I, I pray that there would just be a radiating witness from us as your kids in this place. A radiating witness to the world around us that many would come to know you, Lord Jesus, through this fellowship. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in the valley as well. That your church, not only here, but in this place, in this valley, Lord, would radiate your name that we would be a holy church, a powerful witness for you, Lord God. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.